Hi there and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Kieran Thomas, and I wanna thank you so much for being here and being a proactive parent and getting the resources that you need to let your child live their most fulfilling and independent life possible. When my own son was diagnosed with autism, I was told to drug him and try behavioral therapies and there was nothing else that we could do for him but manage his symptoms the rest of his life. But I didn't wanna do that. Fortunately, my background in craniosacral therapy of now 30 years, let me know that the brain can and does heal, but I didn't know that much about autism. What I did know is that I didn't want to just mask the symptoms with dangerous drugs. I wanted to find the causes and work with them naturally. And fast forward, it took me a decade and a lot of time and effort, but today my son is no longer diagnosable with autism after being told it could not happen. So I'm here to share with you valuable resources to save you the time and some of the expense that I had to spend to figure it out and to help you let your child lead to their best results possible. Every child's level of recovery is different, but we know that children who couldn't sleep through the night are sleeping now through the night and happily. Their immune systems are now strong where they were once sick all the time. Children who were nonverbal and their parents were told they could never speak are now speaking. Children who were getting D's and F's in school are getting A's and B's. And those that were so anxious all the time and couldn't sit still and, and were uncomfortable in their own bodies are now calm and happy and relaxed. And they're leading fulfilling and independent lives with friends. This is what we want for our kids. So I'm here to share the resources with you so that you can get the best results for your child the best possible. And you can start that right now with my free download of this top seven foods to eliminate beginning today of the top foods that are the most inflammatory and toxic that are contributing to those physical and behavioral symptoms of autism that your child is having. They're making his life uncomfortable. So you can get that right now at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash seven foods and feel free to share that with anybody you know who would be interested. And I will also link to it in today's show notes. There's of course a lot more than diet, but this is something you could start doing today that will begin to reduce those symptoms. And I'm happy to share everything I can with you. So right now, let's dive into today's episode. Well, Dr. Lipton, are you there? Bruce. Bruce is here, not not Dr. Lipton. Bruce is here. <laughs> okay, Bruce, it is. You're nice Thank and you. punctual. Thank you. Uh, this is Karen Thomas, and uh, it's very, very nice to meet you. I am a huge, huge fan, so I am so excited that I have you for today's show and that you were willing to give some of your, I know, very, very precious time because I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for being here. Well, I really want to thank you because you know, the whole idea for me is this information is information that is so profoundly important for changing the public and any outlet where I can get uh, an opportunity to inform some people and, and help empower them is for me very exciting. So thank you for the opportunity of being with you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, for our listeners, I'll go ahead and give a, a brief bio on you so that they have a little background um, and know who you are as well. Um, so this is Karen Thomas with NaturallyHealingAutism.com, and I have Dr. Bruce Lipton as our guest today. And um, this is uh, a lot of this is about epigenetics or how genetics can be affected uh, by our environment. And Dr. Bruce Lipton is uh, pretty much a specialist in this field. So 
Um, he is a scientist and a lecturer. He has received his PhD at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1971. He served as an associate professor of anatomy at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. Lipton's research on mechanisms controlling cell behavior employed cloned human stem cells. In addition, he lectured in cell biology, histology, and embryology. Bruce resigned his tenured position to pursue independent research integrating quantum physics with cell biology. His breakthrough studies on the cell membrane skin of the cell revealed that the behavior and the health of the cell was controlled by the environment. Findings that were in direct contrast with prevailing dogma that life is controlled by genes. Lipton returned to academia as a research fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine to test his hypotheses. His ideas concerning environmental control were substantiated in two major scientific publications. The new research revealed the biochemical pathways connecting the mind and the body and provided insight into the molecular basis of consciousness and the future of human evolution. He is, uh, has award-winning lectures. He also has um, a website, which we'll make sure that uh, that, that is uh, given to everybody as well. And I have, um, I, I love your book, uh, The Biology of Belief, and I'm a huge fan of your CD program, The Wisdom of Your Cells. Um, so um, this, this, uh, our listeners are mostly parents of children with autism. So uh, in some respects, I'd like to focus the direction um, a bit towards uh, autism, but of course your field is how genetics are affected by different environmental factors. So um, good morning again and, and welcome. So, and you well, just, thank uh, you for that very, that very, very long <laughs> blah, blah. <laughs> uh, but but the, the fact is hidden in all those words is, is an exciting understanding that uh, we are more powerful than we've ever thought we were, at least uh, we've ever been programmed that we were, and that this new science is, is critically important because it empowers us to take charge of our own health, uh, which after years of being taught that we are victims uh, of our genes, for example, that uh, we can change this. And this is uh, a revolution, the way I see it, it's a revolution for self-empowerment. Absolutely. If people are informed, then they can make informed decisions about how they live their life and the things that they use and the things that they do and subject themselves to. Absolutely. I mean, people are familiar with very old, old uh, saying, uh, knowledge is power. Uh, And while everyone is, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that, I said, you know, it it relates to us on a different level, Same, same meaning, but let's just put it in a different context, and that is a lack of knowledge is a lack of power and that we have been deprived of knowledge that we could use to, to take charge of our lives. And therefore, uh, by being deprived of that knowledge, uh, we perceive ourselves as victims, which is totally incorrect. Right. That's true. So can you give us, um, and I, I do, I know that, you know, signaling defects are basically things that, um, you know, are just changing that DNA blueprint, things like trauma, toxins, and then the mind, even emotional aspects. And um, I have a, a blog that I've written recently, too, and I, one of the pieces I found is it's less than 5% of humans have genetic defects at birth. 95% of, of the defects 
are from incorrect signaling. So can you go on with that a little bit and the types of things that people need to be aware of and prevention? Yes, I, I think the first thing is this. We must clear up a belief system that we've been programmed with that is absolutely false. And yet we run our lives with it, and, and, and it's actually running down the drain because uh, the information we've been uh, constructing our lives with is incorrect. So let me start off with that information that is wrong because when I was doing my research on stem cells, and, and I was cloning stem cells back in 1968, so uh, that was before many of you were born. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and what was interesting about it, I happened to be in the right place at the right time to uh at that at that time there were only a handful of researchers in the entire world that actually knew what stem cells were so i got in the game very early and what did i find and here's what here's the science so let me give you this one experiment that then changed my entire life and then i my whole life has been built on the results of this and here's how it goes that i take one stem cell uh, uh, time for uh, uh definition <laughs> a stem cell is an embryonic cell it's just uh, if I could do a tissue biopsy on uh, a fetus just before it's born, I would say, look, oh, here in the tissue, this is an embryonic cell. And I wait for that fetus to be born. One minute later, the fetus is born. I do the same biopsy, show the same cell, and now it's called a stem cell. Simple point is once you're born, it's not an embryonic cell anymore. So, But it is an embryonic cell, a stem cell, in that it is multipotential and it can replace any type of cell in our body. And I said, well, why should an adult have so many embryonic stem cells in them? And the answer, and this is critical, is that every day, normal attrition, we lose hundreds of billions of cells. Normally die every day. I, I mean, billions of red blood cells and white blood cells are dying. Skin cells are sloughing off. Even the, the, the entire lining of the digestive tract from the mouth to the anus uh, the entire lining of that tract, all the cells are replaced every three days. At some point, it's like, well, these are massive numbers of cells that are dying every day. Uh, and then the quick question, well, how can I stay alive if I'm dying <laughs> inside every day with hundreds of billions of cells? The answer is simple. Every, every time the normal body cells die, the stem cells serve as the replacement population. So our stem cells are continuously dividing and in the process replacing the cells that have died from attrition or damage. So yes, all of us are growing every day. I don't care what age we are, because every day we're losing those billions of cells and every day we must grow. So I have a stem cell, multipotential cell. I isolate it, put one in a Petri dish by itself. That's cloning. Cloning means if you start with one cell, and then the cell divides naturally every 10 hours about. So first I put one cell in the dish, and 10 hours later there are two cells, and 10 hours after that there are four cells, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, doubling every 10 hours. After about a week, I have 50,000 cells in the Petri dish. The most important part of understanding the cloning character is that all of the cells, 50,000 cells, are derived from the one parent cell that I started with, point, I have 50,000 genetically identical cells in the Petri dish. So that gives me my population, my working population, 50,000 genetically identical cells. What I did is I split those cells into three different Petri dishes, and I changed the composition of the culture medium in each of the three dishes. In other words, the culture medium is the environment in which cells live. Simple point, 
cells are like fish. They have to live in a fluid environment. So this is why, for example, when you cut yourself open, fluids leak out. is because underneath your skin is the equivalent of an aquarium of fluid in which all the cells are living. And uh, in the culture dish, we give the name of that fluid culture medium. And I say, but what is culture medium made from? I mean, how do you make it up? And I go, oh, from whatever organism I get the cells to grow in the tissue culture. Did I get the cells from mice? Oh, then I go to a mouse, look at the chemical composition of mouse blood, and try to synthesize that, and that's called culture medium for mouse cells. When I grow human cells, uh, I put the cells in a petri dish, but the culture medium I feed them is based on the chemical composition of human blood. So basically it says this, culture medium is the functional equivalent of blood. And I, so I have three dishes, genetically identical cells, but I change the chemistry of the culture medium a little bit in each of the three dishes. And in one dish, the cells form muscle. In a second environment, different environment, the cells form bone. And yet in a third and different environment, the cells form fat cells. But now you're left with a very profound question. What controls the fate of the cells? And I say, well, a conventional understanding is genes control the cells. And I go, yeah, but here's the problem. In every one of the dishes, all the cells are genetically identical. So I can't say that the genes were different in one dish than in another dish. What was different was the environment uh, in which the cells were living, the equivalent of blood. And I say what's different is if I change the chemistry of that, that uh, culture medium, it changes the genetic activity. So the gene activity wasn't controlled by itself. The, the old saying, a gene turned on and a gene turned off and controls biology – this is a completely false statement in this fact. Genes are blueprints. That's all they are, blueprints, to make the, the proteins, which are the building blocks of the cell. And I go, why is that relevant? I say, well, go into an architect's office, and let's say she's working on a blueprint, and you lean over her shoulder and you ask the architect, excuse me, is your blueprint on or off? And she would look at you totally confused, like, oh, what are you talking about? The, on or off, it's a blueprint. There's no on or off. And I go, precisely. A gene is a blueprint. We have given it the character of what you call self-actualization, meaning genes make decisions. The gene turned on. The gene turned off. And then all of a sudden, when you really get into that story, then you get into the story I was teaching medical students at the time called genetic determinism, meaning, oh, your genes control your characters, and they control themselves, so they turn on and off. So uh, you could be walking down the street, and one day a cell decides, okay, I'm going to be a cancer cell. <laughs> it turns out to be a cancer cell, and you're a victim. Why? Because the cells turned on and off uh, because of the genes. That's our belief. Well, it turns out that entire belief is false. Genes control nothing, meaning there's no activity of a gene. There's no more activity to a gene than a, a paper blueprint on an architect's desk. Uh, meaning that that blueprint doesn't turn itself on or off, doesn't control itself, doesn't regulate itself. And I go, ah, the genes in the cell are blueprints, but to engage the blueprints, you need the equivalent of a contractor. Pull up the the genes that you need and assemble the, the body based on those genes and all that, and I go, well, what's interesting is this. contractor is not the DNA. The contractor is not the genes contractor is the cell membrane, which is the skin of the cell, responding to the environment. As the environment changes, the skin of the cell reads the environment 
and then adjust the biology of the cell to conform and to stay alive in that environment. So I say, okay, great. I have cells in a Petri dish. I change the chemical composition of the culture medium, the equivalent of blood. I control the fate of the cells by the chemistry of the, of the culture medium or the blood. And I go, well, this is really interesting. And people go, yeah, it sounds interesting. It's more interesting than you think for this reason. When you look at yourself in a, in a mirror and see yourself, you say, oh, one individual uh, looking back at me, a single organism. And, and, and so that really, interestingly enough, uh, then what happens, Karen, is that you look at yourself, say, single organism, and I go, ah, oh, great misperception. Is this. Your eyes cannot distinguish the fact that you are not a single organism. You're made out of about 50 trillion cells. I go, why is this relevant? The cells are the living organism. The cells are the things that, that are the individual units of life. A human is by definition, when I say the word Karen, that is a name for a community, by definition. Underneath your skin is 50 trillion cells. And I go, ah, and here's the funny part. A human body is like a tissue culture dish. It's a skin-covered dish. And inside your skin-covered human body culture dish are 50 trillion cells. And guess what? There's culture medium. And the culture medium is the blood. And I say, well, what's the relevance? I say, it does not make a difference if the cell is in a plastic dish or a skin-covered dish in that the genes are controlled by the culture medium in either case. Ah, the genes in your cells, in your body, are, are called upon by the chemistry found in the blood. The blood chemicals elicit gene activity. And then I go, okay, now the next level is, well, who, who controls the chemistry of the blood? Because the chemistry of the blood is obviously controlling the fate and genetics of the cell. So I say, oh, the brain is the chemist, meaning the brain senses the composition of the blood and can adjust the composition of the blood as needed. Now, the key word here is as needed. In other words, how does the brain know which chemicals to put into the blood? And now we come to the end of my long discourse here, Karen, and it comes to the end and says, the picture in the mind, what you see in your mind, is converted by the brain into chemistry. Positive picture releases positive chemistry from blood. A negative uh, vision of the world releases chemistry that provides for protection in the blood instead of growth. And all of a sudden we say, wait a minute, then the fate of my biology, the fate of my cells in my body, is not determined by the genes. I go, absolutely correct. In a world that has been programmed to believe that the genes are in charge of all the characteristics, not just physical, but uh, emotional and behavioral characteristics are attributed to genes, uh, and we go around and go, no, no, genes don't control that. It's the environment, and more important in regard to humans, because the nervous system in the human uh, is between the environment and the cells. So the nervous system reads the environment, and the mind interprets the environment. And when it interprets the environment, the brain releases chemistry that matches the interpretation. The chemistry goes into the blood. The chemistry then travels through the skin-covered Petri dish and controls the genetics uh, and behavior of our cells. What was the point? 
beings had no control. It was our response to the environment, our perceptions of the environment. And I go, why is that relevant? Well, we can change the environment, or we can change our perceptions. I go, and significance? Then all of a sudden, you are, are not the victim of you are the one who's creating the biology based on your perception. Change your environment, change your perceptions, and you have absolute control over your biology, which is completely different than the programming the public has received for about 50 years that their fate is locked into the fate of genes, and genes were self-actualizing, and they were controlling your fate. And the difference between the old biology, which is what I was teaching medical students back a long time ago was called genetic determinism, the belief that genes determine the characteristic of your life. That's what I was teaching. The new biology is called not genetics, it's called epigenetics. Most people are now hearing the word, and I say, well, let me explain it to you what epigenetics means. Epi is the prefix that means above, point. When I say genetic control, which is the old belief system, genetic control translates as control by genes. But if I say epigenetic control, the new science, and I say, well, yeah, but what does that mean? I say, well, epi means above. So when I say epigenetic control, I am literally saying control above the genes. The control is not in the genes. It's above it. And I go, yeah, and what's that? The nervous system. It's the one that will program the cells because the nervous system will adjust the chemistry of the culture medium, which in turn, in the experiments, showed that that was the factor that controlled the fate of the cells. And then I say, as we said just before, but conclude again, we are powerful as compared to the old story where the genes are powerful. They controlled us. We didn't control them. The new science has turned the table and says, no. We control the genes, and if you understand that, then you become empowered because you don't have to be a victim. And, and the significance, as science has, has revealed very clearly, only about 1% of disease in the human population is actually due to genes. That Up to 99% of illness is actually how we are living our lives. And a simple conclusion is this. Biological health of an individual is a complement to the way they perceive their lives. Significance is change your perceptions, and they're capable of changing your biology. And this is what we need to know because if people let go saying, oh, I am powerless, which most people say about things like cancer, diabetes, even autism, when I am powerless and that this is genetically controlled, uh, I, I, I make you a victim. Because I say, oh, no, I'm sorry, your genes control this, and you don't control your genes. Uh, and therefore, um, when people believe they're victims, they, they take no responsibility, which is the obvious reason. Why should, why should I be responsible if I have no control over it? Therefore, people give up responsibility over their health because they say, it's not me, it's the genes. And then they say, who can help me? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the pharmaceutical industry stands up and says, here I am. We will save you. How much money do you have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and yeah. this is the revolution. The revolution is stop spending the money on that stuff. That medicine is lethal. The fact is you just need to get control back uh, over your mind. And, and the way to do that is not buying drugs, but is getting knowledge. And that's why knowledge is 
You cut out there for a minute, Dr. Oh, Larry. I didn't know which part oh. I cut out. I just said, uh, in the end, uh, it's not medicine that's going to heal us, but it's our ability, our knowledge, and our nervous system. So instead of buying drugs to save our lives, what we need to do is take back power through our mind. And that is the new okay. biology. So can you give us some specifics as far as, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe my baby was born that way, or we have, you know, an uncle or uh, his dad that, you know, has um, has Asperger's or autism and things like that. So where would it come in that, um, that, that you know, for those people, what, what we would say to them and and also what we can do. I mean, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer that along with trauma and the mind, that the toxins that, that are, that, you know, we're exposed to, whether in utero or after, after we're born, uh, definitely affect us as well. So can you give a little background um, on, those, on those issues? Yeah. You know, Karen, let, let, instead of using autism right now, because I want to come back to it, because it's a little more complex, okay. let's just do a basic thing like cancer. Okay. okay. Um, uh, some, uh, most people believe there's things called oncogenes, cancer genes that cause cancer, such as the BRCA1 uh, breast cancer gene. And when people uh, get a diagnosis that they have this so-called gene, their immediate belief is, oh, my God, I've got the gene. I'm going to get the disease. And, right. And then you end up with somebody like Angelina Jolie who finds that she has the BRCA1 gene and her mother died of the breast cancer and her grandmother and I think an aunt died of breast cancer. So what she did is, with the old knowledge, looked at herself and said, oh, my God, I have these defective system and they're going to give me cancer, and I have no control over it. So the best thing I could do is have like a double mastectomy, remove the breast tissue so that I don't give a chance for the cancer to start. And, and this is what many people do, because what's the belief? The gene is responsible for the cancer. And then I go, first of all, there is no gene that causes cancer, and that's a scientific fact. Their genes are correlated with cancer. Cancer. So I say, what does that mean? I say, the BRCA, BRCA1 gene is, is the so-called breast cancer gene, and, and we talk about women having this gene and then breast cancer, and that's what motivated Angelina Jolie. And then I go, but nobody stopped long enough to bring up this fact. Only 50% of the women with the BRCA1 gene ever get the cancer. I have to stop and say, why is that relevant? Because it says... Having the gene didn't cause the cancer. 50% of the women have the gene, they don't get the cancer. So all of a sudden, you can't put say, the gene caused the cancer. I go, no, no, the gene's associated with the cancer, but it didn't cause the cancer. We now know that stress is the primary cause of cancer uh, and stress of living in our world and in our dysfunctional uh, communities and dysfunctional families are the primary cause of cancer. And in fact, interesting point, they looked at the fate of children adopted into families where cancer is running in that mm -hmm. adopted child will get the same family cancer as the natural siblings at the same quality, wow. but the adopted child obviously came from totally different genetics. What was the point? The cancer wasn't due to the genes. Cancer was due to the lifestyle and the behavior that is running in the family like genes. In other words, behavior is passed on to the next generation, not via genes, 
but during the first seven years of, uh, of development, that a child learns behavior by observing the parents, the siblings, and the community, takes the behaviors of those individuals and downloads them into their subconscious in the first seven years, and that becomes the database for that child uh, to operate their life. So if you get a very negative programming in the very beginning, then uh, this subconscious program will inevitably undermine you. And, and what they're finding out today, very seriously, is that most of the big issues, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, uh, obesity, cancer, uh, uh, are really a consequence of an environment, not the genes. And, uh, and yet we told people it was the genes. And the moment you tell a person that, they say, oh, I have no <laughs> and then uh you know whatever the the professional tells me is that's the truth and 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 realize that the words that we hear called a diagnosis can manifest as reality even though there was no reason behind it in other words a person goes to a doctor gets a diagnosis of having a terminal cancer and then immediately comes goes about going home uh becoming sick with the cancer and dying only later to find out they never had the cancer. It was the belief in the cancer. Mm-hmm. So we need to 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 understand. Well, and of course, there's there's diet, healthy eating, all the you know toxic food, etc. Oh yeah, um, that's environment. That's environment exactly. And what do you do about? Um, and, and I know we're going with this, but I want to hear it from you um, about changing subconscious beliefs because I I know from. Uh, your um, your your CD set the wisdom of yourself that um, you say by the age of seven all subconscious beliefs are are instilled and the rest of our life we're run by over ninety nine percent of our subconscious creating our our life and so um, what do you suggest for changing those types of subconscious beliefs as well as of course you know the things that we do have control over you know, diet, which it's very poor in America. Um, people are starting to catch on. You know, you eat organically. You, you get you get all of those those chemicals and the sugars and all of the other stuff you don't need, the processed foods, out of your diet. Um, but uh, but what about those subconscious beliefs that that are there? What can you do about them? Well, this is a first thing. Let's own the power of the subconscious beliefs, as you just brought mm-hmm. up. Uh, mm-hmm. Because when we talk about what did my research show uh, in a skin-covered petri dish called the human, and that is that the culture medium that controls the fate of the cells, whether it's going to be cancerous or not, uh, it, that's the control, not the genes. But the culture medium is directly influenced by the consciousness uh, derived from the mind. So uh, if we have uh, some very bad programs in our subconscious mind, there's a tendency for those programs to manifest an environment inside the support illness. Uh, a, a, a simple way of looking at this is how simple. So I want to connect mind-body. That's a critical part because that's always been, oh, that's new age. And I go, no, that's not new age. <laughs> this, is, this is fundamental science. I said, how do I connect the mind-body? And I said, the mind takes a picture from the program, the belief system about life. And I said, yeah, but what does the mind do? It takes the picture in your mind and converts it into chemistry that complements that picture, and that chemistry goes in the body to do what? Manifest the physical expression of the picture in the mind. Uh, and so when you change your mind, you change the chemistry, 
uh, in the blood, which in turn changes the genetic activity. Uh, and then to just follow it up with, here, here's a real, you know, this is not new age. Let's just put it this way. Uh, Karen, you're sitting there in your seat. Um, your eyes are closed. And you open up your eyes and someone you love is standing in front of you. And I go, what is the consequence of seeing that? And the answer is, when you see uh, someone you love, the mind makes an interpretation. and goes, oh, that's my lover. That's the one I love. And I go, well, the mind made that interpretation. What, what does that mean? I say, the mind takes that image of the person you looked at and breaks it down into chemistry and says the first thing, the mind releases when you see that person you're lo you love is called dopamine. Dopamine is pleasure. Yeah, when I'm around the one I love, I feel pleasure. Why? Because the interpretation of this is the person I love releases dopamine. When I see that person, I also release a chemical from the brain called oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical that bonds me to that person. I also release another chemical when I see someone I love called vasopressin, which is a chemical that makes me more attractive so that my lover is attracted to me. Most importantly, when you see someone you love, uh, one of the secretions of the brain interpreting love is growth hormone, which by its name says what it is. Growth hormone enhances the growth. That's why, simple, a person who is living in love is releasing chemistry complementary to that love, which turns the body into health. That's why they say, oh, look, look at those lovers. See how they glow? See how healthy they are? They go, it's not a coincidence. It's an interpretation of the mind releasing chemistry into the culture medium called blood, which then controls the genetics. And I go, just to show you the variable, I'll just give you the opposite. You're sitting there, eyes closed, but when you open them this time, there's something that scares you. I'll tell you right now, all those chemicals released in the previous vision interpretation of love are not released. A new set of chemicals are released when you're in fear. They include stress hormones and anti-inflammatory agents. Uh, uh, th these, are, these are things that affect the immune system. And I go, what's the relevance? I say, the chemistry in the blood of a person who is in fear is profoundly different than the chemistry of a person in love. Uh, and the person in love is in growth. That's why they glow so when they're healthy. And a person in fear is in the process of death death because fear shuts down growth as we get into protection. It's sort of like, hey, uh, in the old days when we were afraid the Russians were going to bomb us, we built bomb shelters. And I go, just think about it this way. Communities happy, growing, healthy, summer day, very beautiful. And uh, then uh, the air raid siren goes off. I go, the community that was involved with work, all of a sudden, what happens when the air raid siren goes off? Oh, they all go into bomb shelter. I go, what about the work? Oh, no, there's no work now because they're all waiting in protection in the bomb shelter. I said, well, how long can they survive in the bomb shelter? And the answer is, well, for as long as they've got food and water down there, they can do that. But if they stay there too long, they run out of food and water. And I say, what's the consequence of staying in the bomb shelter? And the answer is death. And, and this is the difference between love, which offers growth, and fear, which results, if you extend it, in death. Fear causes death because you shut down the growth of the system while every one of your cells is in that bomb shelter. And the fact is, does it have to be a, a, a real uh, air raid? And the answer is, no, it's just the belief of an air raid. And, and the idea is, ah, then in your mind, the belief of a need for protection will cause all your cells to go into that equivalent of a bomb shelter, stop growing, 
And as long as you're in fear, you are now moving toward death, and that's why fear kills, and that's why stress, which is based on fear, is responsible for at least 90% of doctor office visits. As uh, So basic says, then, oh, my God, we have to change our perceptions of life. And then finally, I get to the question that you asked, Aaron. <laughs> I say, okay, my perceptions of life. I say, well, here's the issue. There, when we say the mind, it's actually two minds that work interdependently. Two minds, each mind having a different function and a different way of learning, contribute to what we call the mind. The two minds are the conscious mind, which is the latest evolution of our nervous system, and the remaining portion of the brain called the subconscious mind. The difference between them is profound. The conscious mind is the creative mind. This is what allows humans to, to, to be creative, to make a rocket ship, make a computer. It's like, uh, you know, a bear doesn't have that creative mind, <laughs> can't put that stuff together. We can. So the conscious creative mind is very powerful. And then I say, yeah, but what was the mind before the consciousness evolved? I say, oh, it was called just strictly the subconscious mind, stimulus response. And I say, what's the difference between the two minds? And here it is. Conscious mind is creative. Subconscious and so you mind. cut out briefly there the subconscious oh. or the conscious mind? The conscious <laughs> mind. Okay. The, the conscious mind is the creative mind. Imagination is the, is the source. Uh, and the subconscious mind is actually just a, the habit mind. Push the button, play the behavior. No thinking, no, no, no nothing between the stimulus and the response. It's fixed. It's a program. So I say, ah, then our subconscious mind has programs of how to deal with stimuli or how to deal with life. I, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people think the subconscious mind is evil. And I go, <laughs> the subconscious mind is not evil. It's a machine. There's it, no evilness to it, meaning this. Let's say uh, uh, you have a CD uh, player, and, and the CD is, is playing a program. And I say, well, it's like a habit. I go, oh, uh, you put on the CD, you listen to it, and you say, I don't like that. <laughs> that's, that's really not, you know, I, I don't like that music, whatever it is. And I say, oh, well, it's a program. I say, well, you say change it. And I say, oh, okay, talk to the, to the CD player and see if it will change the program. Come on, CD player, play something different. And I go, how much talking to the CD player will it take before the, the program changes? The answer is, it will never change. It's not how it works. And I go, this is the problem of the subconscious mind. We can keep talking to ourselves to tell us, no, don't do this and do this. And come on, you, you read the book. You can, this is how you should do it. And we keep talking to ourselves. And I go, how come it's so frustrating that we keep talking to ourselves and it doesn't change? And I go, it is because the subconscious mind is the equivalent of that CD player. You can talk to the subconscious mind all you want. There's nobody there to listen to you. It's a machine. And as I said, the programs are where the issues are. Good programs in the subconscious are, are profoundly beneficial. I'll give you an example. When did you learn how to walk? When you were about one to two years old. I go, well, once you learned how to walk, did you ever have to relearn it again? I go, no. Once I learned how to walk, now it's a permanent program. I just have to have the intention, walk. And my uh, stimulus response habit mind knows how to walk. My habit mind knows how to drive the car. I don't have to pay attention to driving a car. So the subconscious isn't uh, an evil thing. It's, it's actually profoundly uh, important and beneficial. The only problem with it is not the mind. It's the programs. And now we go back to, again, Karen says, oh, how do you change the programs? And I go, okay, 
As I mentioned, the two minds are not only functioning different. Imagination is the creative conscious mind's job and uh, habit uh, and programs are the subconscious mind's job, different functions. But the, uh, um, the habit mind, subconscious and conscious mind, that's been the biggest problem because sometimes you say, oh, I, I don't like this behavior and I want to change it. And I say, well, how do you Dr. Lipton, yeah. right when you said the key portion, you cut out again for some it's reason. It's not me cutting out because my phone is still right here. I don't know what it. that is. Yeah, every once in a while it's just a tiny little blip. But, so could you repeat that again? So the, uh, back to the subconscious and the, the, the key problem is to go okay. back to that program. Okay. Uh, the, the, the key problem is that they don't learn in the same way, and yet we keep trying to, uh, you know, teach the subconscious in a way that it doesn't respond. So it gets very frustrating. You keep uh, getting upset with yourself, saying, oh, I, I don't like that behavior. And you talk to yourself, don't do that behavior. And inevitably, the behavior replays itself. And I'm saying that is because the subconscious mind does not respond to that internal conversation change. It doesn't do that. It's not how it works. So I say, okay, how do uh, we already just, you know, emphasize that the two minds function differently, conscious mind creative, subconscious habitual, but about learning. Ah, here's how it works. Conscious mind, by being creative, can learn in many different ways. They could, you could learn by listening to the conversation uh, you and I are having, Karen. Uh, you could read a self-help book. You can go to a, a, a live lecture or a videotape of a lecture. You can just go, aha. And the subconscious, I mean, excuse me, the conscious mind, aha, the conscious mind will change. You read the self-help book, the conscious mind learned very much all this stuff in that book. I give you a quiz on what you just read. You get 100. And then I ask you, well, now that you've read this self-help book, has your life changed? And mm-hmm. most people say, no, not really, yeah. but I'm very smart. <laughs> I know where the, where the problem is. I know is. how it's supposed to work. Yeah, so the question is, How come it didn't learn when you read the book? And the answer is because while the creative mind can just pick it up instantly like that, the subconscious mind does not learn that way. I say, well, how does the subconscious mind learn? I say, oh, there are three fundamental ways to change a program. Two of them are based on the natural process that we use right now in growing up. And I say, what's that? And I say, the first seven years of a child's life, conscious mind is not engaged as a predominant activity subconscious is is engaged. So yeah, but what does that mean? I say, well, the first seven years of a child's life, it's, the child's brain is functioning at a at an, a vibration level, which is measured by something called electroencephalograph (EEG), where they put wires on a person and read their brain. A child's brain for the first seven years is predominantly in a vibration called theta. Uh, it's a lower vibration than consciousness, which is alpha, higher vibration. Theta is imagination. And this is why, then you think about kids under seven, mixing the real world and the imaginary world seamlessly. Mother says, give me the broom. The child says, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a horse. To the kid at that moment, riding that broom, it isn't a broom. It's a horse. Imagination has overtaken it. And I go, ah, yeah. So uh, ages from zero to seven, predominant brain activity, theta, predominant activity, imagination, and then I go, and here's the other thing. Theta is hypnosis. It says, oh, first seven years of a child's life, it learns the behaviors necessary to become a member of a family and a functional member of the community, not through books and reading and learning. A child learns these by 
having a brain in theta, which is hypnosis, the brain is like a video recorder. It records the behavior of the mother, the father, the siblings, the community, downloads their behavior because they're in hypnosis. So I say, wait a minute. Then the first seven years, you are acquiring behavior not based on your wishes and your desires and your needs and wants. You're downloading behavior by copying other people. And, and, and so the fundamental behaviors that are in your habit mind, push the button, play the behavior, are behaviors that don't represent what you, what you want out of your life. They represent other people. And then you go, okay, that's in the subconscious mind. Uh, I, I'll just use the conscious mind, which is the basis of wishes, desires, and aspirations. Karen, what do you want out of your life? Whatever answer you give me is a creative answer because you're projecting into the future. You say, this is what I want. I go, oh, then your wants, wishes, and desires, creative, are coming from the conscious Go, yeah, but the programs that are fundamental subconscious don't necessarily match that at all. I go, well, then, as I said, fine, we'll just use the conscious mind and not rely on the programs in the subconscious. And then I go, okay, this is it. This is the wake-up moment. This is the change-your-life moment right here for this reason. Science has revealed a very important fact. Conscious mind, which I said is creative and, and has all your wishes and desires in it, also capable of think, thinking. Yeah, I could go. I can have a thought, and I can come up with an answer. I'll give you an example right now, Karen, darling. Tell me, uh, what are you doing at two o'clock on Sunday afternoon? You literally uh, want the answer. What's that? <laughs> well, you don't have the answer, but I. I, just, <laughs> I wanted to bring this up for a very simple reason. I say, where do you find the answer to that? Outside? Is it somewhere out here? No. The conscious mind went inside. For a moment, the conscious mind is thinking, going through like a little Rolodex. What am I doing on, on Sunday, Sunday, 2 o'clock? What am I doing? I go, wait, did you notice just what happened? You were thinking. Your attention wasn't directed to the outside anymore. Your conscious mind was directed inwards. Right. Doing. I go, oh, wait a minute. Then when I am thinking, I'm not paying attention to the world. I go, Absolutely. When you're thinking, you're internal processing. So, well, then, if I'm walking down the street and I all of a sudden have a thought, does that mean I stop walking until my thought is clear, and then once it's clear, I take up walking again? Or I'm driving the car and I have a thought. Does that mean I stop the car and then have the thought and then start driving the car again? No. You either continue walking or you continue driving. And I say, wait a minute. My conscious mind, we just determined, was thinking and it wasn't paying attention, but I'm still walking, or I'm still driving a car, and I didn't hit any other cars, and I didn't walk into a telephone pole. I say, well, who was in charge of the walking? I go, subconscious mind. It's the default. It's the autopilot. The moment you are conscious mind, which is the creative mind, is thinking, that means it's internalized. Then all behavior at this moment is controlled by the subconscious. I say, yeah. You know how to walk, that's a program in the subconscious. You know how to drive the car, that's a program in the subconscious. You know how to communicate with other people without paying attention. Why? That's subconscious. You learn how to behave. And I go, so then, critical thing coming here, Karen, <laughs> and it goes like this. That means then when I am thinking, my conscious mind is preoccupied internally. 
I take my hands off the wheel, I'm not driving the vehicle for that moment. The moment I'm not driving the vehicle, the vehicle's still alive, still in the world doing its things. Behavior is by default taken over by the subconscious mind. So I say, when you're thinking, you're not using your creative mind to make your life. You're using your subconscious programs, which came from other people. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the statistic that will blow your mind if you think about it is science has recognized that from 95 to 99% of the day, our conscious minds are engaged in thought. What does that mean? Well, from 95 to 99% of the day, your behavior that you're expressing that other people are responding to is not coming from your conscious mind, which is the seed of your personal identity, your spirit, who you are. The conscious mind is you. It's not coming from there. It's coming from the program, which I said, "Uh uh-oh, it's not your behavior. It's other people's behaviors that you're now playing back. And psychologists will tell us that 70% or more of those downloaded subconscious programs acquired in the first seven years of life are disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. And so therefore, when we're playing our subconscious program because our conscious mind is busy in thought, the behavior that we're manifesting almost inevitably takes us away from wishes and desires and can cause all the problems of life. And then somebody in the audience right now will go, yeah, but I would see my behavior was self-destructive and I would stop it. And I go, theoretically, that might be an idea, but the problem is rarely do you see that. Only on rare occasions you might say, oh, my God, I was just acting like my mother. Oh, my God, I was just behaving like my father. Rare occasions, 95% of the time, these behaviors are played without you seeing it. And they're self-sabotaging. And you don't see it. Why? Because conscious mind was busy. It didn't see the behavior. So I give this story in my, all my lectures, same story. And, and the reason is because almost everybody is, laughs or is familiar with it enough, so it makes the point, and that is this. You probably had a friend you knew in growing up. Uh, you were very close to your friend. You knew your friend's behavior very, very well. And you happen to know your friend's parent. One day, you see that your friend shares some of the same behavior as their parent, and this excites you, so you can't wait to tell your friend, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And you back away from Bill, because mm-hmm. Bill goes totally ballistic and says, how can you compare me to my dad? I'm, I'm nothing like my dad, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and everyone laughs at us because they're familiar with it. And I go, most profound story I can tell you, point, Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. Explain it simple. Bill got the behavior from his dad during the first seven years of his life, and he only plays it when he's thinking. And because he's thinking, he's not paying attention. So when he's playing his father's behavior, he's the one that doesn't see it, and everyone else does. I go, what's the relevance of that? Because we go through our lives... We struggle, we have problems, troubles, and everything. And we say, yeah, but this is not my desire, my wish. This is not what my conscious mind wants. So uh, this is what I can tell you what I want. I'm not getting it. Uh, And therefore, that individual says, well, it's not me. I have all these great wishes and desires, and I'm having trouble manifesting them. So it must be the world is against me. Fate is against me. Whatever it is. I am a victim because I have all these positive wishes and desires, and my life is not manifesting them, so something out there is sabotaging the system. And then I go, exactly. 
but that something out there is actually something in there. It is the subconscious. And therefore, 95% of our behavior is not reflecting our wishes and desires, and it's primarily invisible. And as we're shooting ourselves in the foot all day long with very bad behavior, when we get home and we look at our foot and it's bloody, and we go, who the hell did that? <laughs> not recognizing we were creating everything our our minds create. And if we're operating from these programs that are negative and disempowering, as psychologists tell us, and they're not observed by us, then we feel we are victims when, in fact, we are the masters. So remember a question you asked me a long time ago, Karen? <laughs> I can tell you what that question is now. That is, how do you change these negative behaviors, okay? Well, here's the problem. The programming occurs in the first seven years of life. That's a fact. In fact, it's been known for 400 years. <laughs> it's not a new science thing. The Jesuits have been very proud and boast, give me a child until it's seven and I will show you the man. What they were saying, and people didn't grab onto it, it's like they were saying if, if you give somebody the control of the first seven years of your life, the programs they install will be the programs that will determine the character of your life. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's not There's all these people fiction. thinking, no, no, I don't want that to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've all been programmed. And then you say, yeah, but when we get the program, from the last trimester of pregnancy to the first seven years is when theta is the predominant brain activity downloading other uh, other people's behaviors by observing them. And I go, oh, wow, that first seven-year period. Uh, and then I say, these are the programs that happen to be in the subconscious when your mind is thinking and then you default to the autopilot subconscious to control, you're defaulting to these programs. And, the, again, they're invisible, and that's why we don't see it. So, in fact, yes, we've all been programmed with beliefs, and we are indeed in the world called The Matrix. It's not science fiction. It's actually a documentary, the movie, that we've been programmed. And then the issue that we really want to talk to about changing belief first says, well, how do I know what the heck the beliefs are? I was programmed when I was zero. I have no idea what was going in. What happened? What did I learn when I was one? Oh, I can't tell you what that is. And all of a sudden you say, oh, my God, how do I know what my programs are because they're primarily shaping my life? And I go, ah, well, that was the answer. You don't have to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to undo all the programming that led to your current situation for this simple reason. 95% of our life is coming from the subconscious. Point, our life is a printout of our subconscious programs. Point, you don't have to go back in time to find out what the programs are. Look at your life right at this moment, and I'll tell you a simple insight. Anything that you like that comes into your life easily comes in because you have a program to encourage that. Contrast, and this is one I want people to pay attention to, anything you work hard at, struggle over, put a lot of effort into, anything you sweat over to make it happen, question, are you working so hard to make Answer, almost inevitably, that thing that you want to happen is not working, is not working because you already have a program that doesn't encourage. 
So all of a sudden I say, what are my subconscious programs? I say, look at your life. It's a printout of your subconscious. The things that work, work because you have programs to support them. And the things that you seek and have trouble getting uh, represent programs uh, that are taking you away from your destination. Finally, Lipton comes down to the home stretch and says, how do you change those programs? So I say, the only way you can change the programs is the way in which the subconscious mind learns. In other words, you can't teach the subconscious uh, a new belief if it doesn't use that process to learn with. So I said, well, how does the subconscious mind learn? I go, oh, firstly, how does it learn? First seven years, hypnosis. That's because the child's brain is in theta for seven years, and that is by natural a state of hypnosis. So I say, oh, so if I get into a hypnotic state, I can rewrite the program. Yes. Do I have to go see a hypnotherapist? I go, not really, for a simple reason. Vibration theta in EEG, the brain vibration, is a lower vibration. There, there are four main vibrations. Delta is the lowest one, that's sleep. Theta is the next vibration up the scale, that's imagination and hypnosis. As you go up to the next higher vibration, that's called alpha, which is calm consciousness. And the next one up, a higher vibration, is called beta vibration, and that's like thinking, schoolroom work, job work, you know, busy, busy mind work. So, so I'm sleeping, I'm in the lowest one, delta. <laughs> But when I start to awake, guess what? My brain starts to ramp up the vibration. So from Delta, I move in just as I'm waking up, twilight reverie they refer to it, just as you're waking up, your conscious mind and your subconscious mind are mixed at this moment. Uh, and, and this is uh, really that, that just waking up. As a matter of fact, if you have a clock radio on when you're waking up, part of the radio program is coming into the mind and being picked up. Uh, and the mind was also dreaming at the, you know, uh, and coming out of it, guess what? You'll mix the radio information to the dream information, and all of a sudden uh, you are now directing your dream toward what the radio is going. But that's that morning wake up. As soon as you're up, you're now in calm consciousness alpha. You get ready to go to work, and you get into beta, the high, high energy vibration mind. But when you come home at night, it goes back in reverse. Come home, high vibration, you relax, calm consciousness alpha, you're just drifting off to sleep, that's when your head is nodding off, theta, and then after a short time you're in sleep, delta, and I go, what's the point? Every night you go through theta, just as you're going to sleep. That's the hypnosis state. I say, what can you do? Put a pair of earphones on your head as you're going to bed. Play a program uh, like a CD or whatever you use, to with uh, the message that you want to be part of your life program. Put it on as you're going to bed, earphones over your ears, and as you are slipping off, consciousness disconnects. The moment of theta is taking all those words that are on that uh, program and downloading it, bypassing consciousness, downloading it straight into subconscious. So I go, yes, this is an uh, absolutely wonderful way of reprogramming because that's the natural process that occurs when the brain is in theta okay and then i say yeah but how does the brain subconscious learn programs after seven because now we're not in theta anymore i'll go oh after seven how do you learn something new practice repetition habituation repeat it over and over again how'd you learn how to drive a car you didn't know how to drive a car the second you got into a car you had to practice driving the car how'd you learn how to say uh abc's and go from a to z I say, you didn't do it the first time, that's for sure. You had to do what? 
start it and then get to a stop point where, oh, like A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, oh, E. Oh, okay, now I say A, B, C, D, E, I'm really good. I just learned a new letter now. A, B, C, D, E, I'm really good. Uh-oh, F, that's a new one. i got to learn that. What's the point? Repetition. So we repeated the alphabet so many times that we finally got to Z. And guess what? Once you were able to go from A to Z, you never have to do it again. Now it's a program. So I say, ah, after seven, downloading new program is the base uh, uh, driven by habituation practice. That's what it is. You want to change your behavior? Then engage in a new behavior as a practice and repeat it. And it may seem so strange because it's not your life, but I say, yeah, but guess what? When you repeat something over and over and over again, it becomes a habit. So you create a new behavior. Uh, it's not, uh, you can't use a sticky note on the refrigerator. That's not going to work for a simple reason. That's not a habit. That's just an occasional, oh, yeah, look at that thing on that little sticky note. That's nice. I go, that's, that doesn't, that's not a habit. A habit is repetition. So you actually have to engage in it. Create a new uh, desired wish or a behavior or thought pattern. You, you, you say, uh, I can't find love. I say, well, act as if you're in love. <laughs> I say, well, what would I act as if, if I was in love? How would I act? I go, you'd be happy. You'd be joyous about it. And I go, and you're not in love? And you want me to act like I'm in love? I say, yeah, fake it till you make it. Because if you keep acting like a person in love, oh, I'm joyous. I go to the supermarket. I talk to the clerk. I'm joyous. Why? I'm in love. Is there somebody out there? Not necessarily. Do you believe, you know, are you making a belief that you want to exercise? Yeah, I would be happy if I was in love. So I'm going to be happy and practice happy. Guess what? I become happy. Ah, you change the program. So two ways of changing subconscious. A, hypnosis, auto-hypnosis, subliminal tapes are called. Okay? B, wait, uh, I mean, till after uh, the, the way you learned after seven was repetition of a behavior. You can create a new habit. Fine. And then lastly, and this is the most important one for me, there's a third way to change the subconscious mind, and it is profoundly powerful and extremely fast compared to hypnosis and habituation. It's a group of uh, energy psychology modalities, the name energy psychology. These are new modalities of how to uh, uh, open up the subconscious mind for a rapid download. Uh, using these uh, modalities, uh, you can rewrite a limiting belief in matters of five to ten minutes. A belief you may have had 50, 60 years sabotaging you unconsciously in your subconscious mind, when addressed using energy psychology, it, it engages something like a super learning process, which allows us to download a new behavior in minutes. And it's interesting because Human civilization is facing a, a very uh, extreme time period here where we're seeing the collapse of our civilization. And we're facing extinction, according to scientists, and, and it's all due to human behavior. So it says in order for human civilization to survive, and this is not uh, uh, an extinction event like a million years from now. We're talking about extinction events within 100 years from now, uh, and it's due to the way humans are altering the planet and destroying the ecosystem and destroying each other. Uh, and, and so what's the point? It says we don't have a lot of time. We've got to change behavior. And the whole thing, necessity, is of invention. 
We have a necessity to change as fast as possible. And guess what? We are given a new opportunity via energy psychology to make radical changes in our behavior in minutes and walk away as a different person. I know this not just from teaching it. I know it because my whole life is profoundly changed by these processes, which I learned about. And then once I incorporated them, it's like, oh, my God, I can change these. And the relevance is simply this. The beliefs that we've been programmed take us away from our wishes and desires. Why? Because the beliefs do not support our wishes and desires. They're other people's behaviors. And I go, well, that's the problem on this planet is that everyone is seeking this wonderful wishes and desires and not getting there. And I say, yes, because of the matrix. We've been programmed not to get there. I go, but there's an interesting part in the matrix uh, the protagonist is given a chance to take either a blue pill or a red pill. The movie line is that when you take the blue pill when you wake up, you're back into the program and life is exactly the way it's always been. In contrast, if the person takes the red pill out of the program, well, the movie really didn't say, well, what would be the actual consequence of taking a red pill and getting out of that program that we all received in the first seven years? The answer is, We've done it. Almost everybody on this line has taken the red pill at one time or another and didn't even know they did it, but their life changed instantaneously and profoundly. I go, well, what was that event that was equivalent to the red pill? And it turns out science has recognized fall deeply in love, head over heels in love. Beginning of that love, which I refer to as the honeymoon period, is a period that science has recognized that we stay mindful in the beginning of that love. What does that mean? Being mindful means staying present, meaning not thinking so much. You say, well, why should I not think so much when I fall in love? And the answer is, you finally found what you've been looking for, that person or whatever it is is in front of your face. And, and, and if you're thinking, you're not, you, you're not paying attention to it. And so we are drawn to keep our mind present because, oh, my God, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. You stay in that present moment. I go, what happens when you stay in the present moment? You stop thinking. I go, what's the consequence of stop thinking? We stop defaulting to the subconscious. I say, what's the consequence of that? And the answer is the honeymoon experience. I say, what's the honeymoon experience? I say, well, it's associated with A, Vibrant health. Yes, we talked about when people are in love, the secretions of a brain in love enhance our health uh, and that's really great. And I say, what else? I say, well, we have so much energy when you're in love. You could stay awake for days making love without stopping for food or sleep, which probably you did. And then I go, and not only that, I say, what was the experience of being in love on the honeymoon? I said, it was heaven on earth. My life sucked right up until I met this person. And then head over heels, I fell in love, and the next period was like, oh, my God, it's heaven on earth. I'm so happy to be alive. I love everything. And I go, how does our life change from radical, <laughs> so radical from this, you know, sucky life to this heaven on earth? And the answer was, it was the moment you stopped operating from the subconscious programs. That moment is when your conscious mind wishes and desires took control of your behavior, and you and your partner manifested wishes and desires, which was what? Heaven on earth. And I go, that is the consequence of playing the program. And I say, yeah, but unfortunately, the honeymoon disappears. And I go, why did it disappear? And the answer, and this is, is that 
right up to, you know, while you're in that honeymoon period, you're not playing the programs. But inevitably, even if you're in love like that, hey, life intervenes. You still got a job. You got chores to do. You got to fix the car. You got to take care of the yard. And all of a sudden, I say, what's happening? Well, you have a honeymoon because you keep your conscious mind present and, and are operating from wishes and desires. As life intrudes, uh, meaning we start thinking, and then all of a sudden, subconscious. Bruce, you're, you're cutting out again right there. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear I that. I know. I don't know. It's like every time you say something like the part. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let's, <laughs> let's repeat it because this is important. What's going on? Let's repeat this. It's important. And that is this. The honeymoon works, and heaven on earth is your life experience, and that's a natural way of living when you are in charge of uh, controlling your vehicle, your hands on the wheel, conscious driver. But the moment you start thinking because of life's needs and necessities, uh, the thinking starts. All of a sudden, your behavior is not controlled by your wishes and desires. Now it's the program. I say, well, there's a couple of consequences of that. Number one, just like we talked about Bill playing his dad's program, and he didn't see it. Uh, When you start defaulting and start playing the programs, you're Bill. I say, why is it relevant? Because you may not see the behavior, but your partner can see the behavior and Mm -hmm. says, what kind of behavior is that? Who are you when these negative behaviors start showing up? Why? They never played when you were in the honeymoon. That was the red pill. I stopped thinking. I am running my vehicle hands on the wheel. And so your partner has never seen any of these negative behaviors. But once you start thinking, defaulting, and the negative behaviors take over, uh, and then there, now there is a disconnect between and 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 this is when the honeymoon begins. Compromises come in because the behaviors that you start playing are not behaviors that support a honeymoon. Honeymoon and the ends and then normal life begins once again. Then I say, what is the relevance to your question of how can I change the subconscious program? And the answer is this. I use those techniques, hypnosis, habituation, or energy psychology modalities. I use those and rewrite my subconscious to have programs. Listen to this. Put in the programs in the subconscious that match the wishes and desires. What would result, the answer is this. You would live a honeymoon experience every day of your life for as long as you live. Why? Because when you're conscious, you're going to be running from conscious mind, wishes, and desires. But the moment you start thinking and default to the subconscious, guess what? If you put the new programs in, it's the same what? Wishes and desires. So whether you're paying attention or not paying attention, your behavior will manifest heaven on earth. And this includes not just the happiness, health. Every level of health is associated with that. Changing your mind is what allows a person to express what is called spontaneous. They have been given a terminal death sentence of a cancer. Doctor says, go home, take care of your affairs. And this particular patient looks at their life and says, holy crap. My life just sucks, the job, the relationships, and all that, and I, I'm going to just let go of that. I don't care anymore. I disconnect from my program. If I only have a short time left, I'm just going to go out and enjoy my life. And guess what? These are the people that were supposed to die in three months. 
three months come, they're having a wonderful, healthy, happy time. Four months, five months, six months, a year, two years, and you realize, where's the cancer? Cancer was a manifestation of a, a program. When you stop playing the program, cancer goes into remission. Is there some form of um, something that, aside from, uh, I know playing subconscious CDs at bedtime is a really good thing to do, whether it's in, on headphones, um, and there are some good programs out there, but uh, um, you know, say a child does have autism and yeah. you're wanting to, to, you know, kind of deprogram some of that internalization, right. especially uh, and, as they heal, which is what I work with too, and then I, I get into that as well. But what do you have for that? Well, uh, one of the things that we found very quickly is this, is that uh, think about it this way. We talked about the fact that a body can be in growth and a body can be in protection. We talked about that, that if the system feels insecure where it is, it will revert from growth into protection. That, that's what the subconscious mind is going to do. It's going to protect you from, this isn't right. I go, what's the protection? I say, well, that's going into the bomb shelter. I go, autistic child, whatever the neurological issues are, are insecure in the environment in which they live. And as a result, disconnect from that environment. They're inside. But they, the, the, that connection with the outside is broken because of some either you know physiological defect or psychological problem at that issue. And I go, what do you need to do? I said, well, I need to get the child to engage. So how can you do that? Well, one of the things that, uh, and you're very familiar with, I'm sure, is the fact that an autistic child will not look at the face. Mm -hmm. Eye contact, yeah. And I go, why is that relevant? Because I'll tell you what the natural, normal behavior of an infant is. Within the first week of a child's life, the child is programmed to study the face of the mother and the father, know who they are. Right away, first few hours, they begin to check in. That's the mother and that's the father. But within the first couple of weeks, they also do this. Not only can an infant see and recognize the face of the mother and father, but they can determine the mother or father's uh, behavior at that moment as being happy, or scared, or afraid, or concerned by looking at the face. That's, I mean, we do this as adults. You can look at a picture and get an idea of what that person is feeling. I say, yeah, that was programmed infancy. And I say, why was it relevant? Because it's instruction. It's instruction for the child. If people don't see this when they're raising children. The design of the system is when the child encounters something new in the world, the first thing it does is look at the face of the parent because it uses that facial expression to determine whether what they're looking at is, is safe or not safe for them. If they turn around, if they encounter something new, turn around and see the mother and she has a startled look on her face like, oh, like you know, the child's at the top step of a stairway and looks at the mother and looks at the stairway and then looks back at the mother and the mother's like freaking out. That infant automatically knows because of the programming that this stairway is dangerous and will stay away from it. In contrast, if the child encounters something new and looks up the mother, and the mother is looking back, acknowledging like happiness and everything, that everything is okay, the child then takes that new thing it just saw and has now a program that this is okay. Why? Because the mother was saying it's okay. Even to, to, the, to the child's ability to feel pain or not, think about this. A child's on a swing set, 
falls off the swing while it's laying in the dirt on the ground, the first thing it does is look at the mother. If the mother's in a state of shock, mm-hmm. like, ah, the child will begin to cry. In contrast, if the mother's looking at the child and saying, oh, it's okay, get up, the child doesn't cry, gets up and gets back on the swing again. The behavior was determined by that visual connection. Right. And then we say, but autistic children don't do that. They're disconnected mm-hmm. from the learning. So one of the interesting things is a program, and I can't remember the name, and you probably know that woman, who was uh, uh, taking care of autistic children. And what she learned to do was when feeding the child, uh, giving it a bottle, if the child did not look at her face, she would take the bottle away. And she would only feed the child if the child stayed focused on her face. What was the result? It overcame autism. Once the child made the connection and learned that that was the habit, the connection, look at the face, read the face, be comfortable with reading the face, the autistic characteristics disappeared. So basically it says, yeah, you've got to change the program. This child is disconnected and is, in a sense, in the bomb shelter for whatever reason. It could be a real reason. Uh, uh, I mean, look. Autism has many different sources, so I, I don't want anybody to think mm-hmm. that any one source is what they did. In other words, you can go back to um, uh, Romania, where they had all the uh, orphanages there, and Ceausescu, when he was running the place, uh, uh, encouraged people to have babies, but they couldn't afford to keep them. Uh, there was a problem socially. Uh, the government was saying, yeah, have more kids. That will increase the, you know, the power of our population. But they couldn't afford to live as it was. So it was an everyday event for a person to have a baby and then leave it at a state-run orphanage. That was just everyday life. The problem was that the vast majority of kids in these orphanages expressed autism. They were not connected when they were put in the orphanage. They were a kid in a bed with no connection to a community or family or anything. As a result... They acquired autism. Why? They were insecure in the world they were living in, fear of that world, and what did they do? The only way they could, you know, help themselves was disconnect their consciousness from that world. And that is the characteristics of an autistic child, Uh, a lack of love from the parent, a lack of communication. This is a negative process that gives rise to autism. Yeah, but can I interfere with the normal development of the nervous system and not be uh, a a bad parent? Can I just uh, interfere with this development of the nervous system and and result in autism? The answer is absolutely it can. And it results in what? An environment that is is not supportive, whether it's a nutritional environment, that could do it as well. And uh, we also have to recognize this. The parents could be working all the best they possibly can. If there's a defect in the system, they're not going to be able to easily penetrate. But that's why making new habit, like having the baby stare in the eyes, making them create this new habit, can overcome that. And then lastly, so we can say, yes, a parental abuse or negative environment can cause autism, and, and it does occur. That's a fact. Ceausescu's orphanages are classic examples of that. But in contrast, parents could be giving fullest amount of love and intention and every desire and wish and still not affected. Oh, well, then now there's maybe something organic that got in the way of that, a vaccine. 
could influence things like that because the development of the of the immune and nervous systems is not ready when when children get vaccines they should get vaccines the system the immune system isn't really independently functioning until about age two or three and look at our vaccine schedule i think we have 59 vaccines given the kids before age two and i say oh but the system wasn't developed and you're overloading it with these toxic vaccines of course there's an influence on that uh and uh, i mean look the child's immune system isn't working to the extent is how does a child get immune protection and the system is not working the answer is uh through mother's milk because mother's mm-hmm. milk is a source of antibodies that the child depends on until the child's uh, system begins to kick in and take over I go, oh, yeah, we have a problem. How many parents are not feeding their kids with with breast milk? Oh, right. well, there's a problem. Formula has none of this in it. Not do this at all. You've immediately compromised the immune system of a child by not breastfeeding. Why? That was the source of the antibodies that kept it healthy for the first couple of years of its life. Uh, so we have to see some of our behaviors are are not necessarily, even though we think we're doing the best thing, I got this best formula. Well, there is no best formula. The only best formula, and it's the fact of science, fact of science, the best formula for a human child is human breast milk because it was designed for that. Anything other than human breast milk will not have the metabolites, nutrients, and, and elements such as antibodies necessary for for the vibrant awakening of this child. So I say, oh, well, even the parents are trying their best doing something like a vaccine. <laughs> that that throws a monkey wrench into the system, okay? Mm-hmm. And then lastly, and this is really important because as a scientist, I didn't believe in this myself when it first started, and that was this. I was not a spiritual person. I totally believed in, hey, genes create life. We're here. You live. You die. All the pieces go back in the soil, and a future organism will use all your building blocks. I since learned in understanding the nature of biology belief and the role of the membrane and where personal identity is that who we are is information in the field like a broadcast. And the body is like a television receiver, picks up an identity and then plays that. So my body is playing the Bruce show and yours playing the Karen show. The relevance of my research really indicated that our identity is a broadcast picked up by receptors, antennas on the membrane, the skin of our cells. And why is that relevant? Because if the cell dies, the identity was never in the cell. The identity was picked up by the cells. And I go, oh my God, then my identity is like an immortal broadcast. And and that when I step into the body, I am now downloading that identity in this mechanism called the human. Well, all of a sudden, once I introduce the concept of an immortal energy, identity, a soul, a spirit, then you have to recognize this. We have been here before, not the last time we are here. That our life experiences, we not only receive the broadcast of our identity picked up by what are called self but we also broadcast our life experiences back to that source. So a spirit, when it comes into a body, did not come in with a blank slate. It came in with maybe thousands of years of hundreds of hundreds of lifetimes. And I go, yeah, but each lifetime feeds back into the source. And so there's like a karma kind of thing. And the issue a child comes in with autism, you say, oh, did the parent do it? I say, no. Oh, did the vaccine do it? No. I say, 
But then how come the child's here? And I say, maybe the child is teaching something. Something? I mean, a child would come in and uh, and sacrifice its life uh, uh, to, to have a sickness, an illness, a disease, die of a cancer, have Alzheimer's kind of stuff going on. A child would do this? I go, you have hundreds and hundreds of lives, and we're part of a, 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 a of a global community where each individual is part of one super thing called humanity. What if you came in out of one of the, of the hundreds of lives and say, I came in to provide a lesson for people so people can learn? Sacrifice this existence. Why? Oh, I have hundreds of more coming, but I came this one to learn. The people that died at Auschwitz. Millions of people died at Auschwitz. What was the point? They taught the world a lesson, not that we really have fully learned that lesson because we're replaying some of it now. I say, maybe a child came in this way. What's the point? Don't blame the parent. Don't blame the system. No blame at all. Maybe this is something for us to learn, to deal with, to work with, to improve the rest of the world. So we must recognize that having an immortal soul means that back in and leaving and coming back in, and that if we are part of a, a humanity, then maybe we give one of those lives or a lesson for other people. And, and therefore, I can't blame anybody for that. That, that, was, that was a mission statement of that soul when it came back to Earth. So when we try to look, what is the cause of autism? And then the first thing science says, well, let me look at the genes. And the first thing they found, just like breast cancer, there is no gene that specifically causes autism. The MTHFR gets blamed a lot. And then people have these testings done now. And if they find that, that they carry the MTHFR, or if their children do, then they're like, well, that's it. And that's why. But then we find, as you were talking about this whole time, that many, many people carry this gene. But it doesn't matter if it's not triggered by, you know, one of the things we discussed here, then then it, you just carry it. And it, 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 But you have to, you know, you know, be sure not to, to, you know, do one of those things that hopefully triggers it and, and, uh, or have that experience. I, I, that's exactly right. what it is. And, and it's to take the onus off the parents uh, because there's, there's two choices. Hey, hey, it's out of my control. It's genes. I had nothing to do with it. I, uh, my child's a victim. B, the other people are saying, oh, well, you know, the parents are influencing all this. And then the parents feel, holy shit, excuse me. Still, <laughs> holy yeah. Giant. What did I do wrong with me? (laughs) What did I do wrong? And then they take on the blame and and the guilt and all this stuff, and it's like, hey, none of that may be the the cause of it. Keep open. All you really have to do is say, what can I do to make the best of the situation, rather than to sit there and think of, well, these are all the things I did wrong, and now I feel bad as a parent, and, and I have to live with this and suffer and all that. And it's like, that's not true. That we must get people to recognize uh, that there are reasons why things show up. Some of them organic, yes. Yeah. Something physically went wrong in the development of the child. Some of them, uh, you know, uh, in a sense psychological, yeah. There was some, something that happened, trauma to the child, in some sense disconnection. A lot of it could happen right in the medical arena itself when, when uh, there's an intervention by the medical people in the birth of a child, things like using those uh, uh, forceps to yank a kid mm, out of the birth uh-huh. canal, uh, 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 take away the child from the mother and keep it separated from the mother right after birth is one of the biggest traumas 
a child could ever experience in life. Why? Its life is totally connected to its mother. It's sort of like, uh, think of a, uh, an astronaut uh, connected by an umbilical cord, same name, to the spaceship. And as long as it's connected to the umbilical cord, uh, with the umbilical cord, the astronaut's like, I feel safe, everything's cool. Uh, and then uh, find out what happens if you cut the umbilical cord and you go, oh, my God, floating free in space. Uh, you know, that's the scariest thing possible. And the relevance is uh, uh, when you take a child away immediately after birth, that child is like an astronaut lost in space. Karen, dear, I've been talking so much, I realize I, I have to leave because I have to, to, to do an interview again. And, uh, and I've got so many things I would like to talk about, but it appears I must move forward here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bruce. You've been great. Um, you've given a lot of information. Can you, would you please, uh, leave your website? Oh, it's, yes, it's so easy. It's brucelipton.com. And uh, I just want to thank everybody that's out there listening, because if any of these words help, then that means that we can start to empower ourselves and take back control and stop perceiving ourselves as victims and our children as that we are more powerful. We can overcome anything. We just have to do it with a very positive outlook rather than the negative one that says, oh, my God, victim, powerless, we can't do anything. So I want to thank all the listeners out there, because if I can just put a seed in there, to facilitate self-empowerment, that's exactly what Absolutely. And I know that you promote uh, Psyche is something to get to the that's subconscious one of the as well as some of the programs. Right, yeah, that's, that's on the, your website. One of the modalities on the website where I list a whole bunch of them, so I encourage mm -hmm. people to take a look at that. Yeah. And um, we'll let you go because you've got it going. Again, this is Karen Thomas with naturalhealingautism.com. And um, thank you again so much for your time, Bruce. We really appreciate it. I'm sure people have learned quite a bit today. <laughs> thank you for this opportunity. Bye-bye. All right. You have a great day. Bye-bye.